Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. Hey everyone, welcome back to, what is this now, the fourth episode, I think it is, of our deep dive into all things Doug Wilson. If you've been with me since the beginning, thanks for coming along with me on this weird and sometimes really highly disturbing journey. Now let's take a a minute, let's take stock of some of the topics and the issues that we've taken a look at so far. So we've already covered in the first couple episodes, we did a two-hour deep dive into his backstory, some of his theological influences. After that, we had an episode with Kate West, who grew up, or maybe I should say survived, a Doug Wilson-inspired Christian homeschooling, stay-at-home daughter environment. Now, if you haven't heard that particular episode yet, you really should go back and listen to it, because it really will give you an insider's perspective on what it's like, and especially from the point of view as a woman, what's it like to grow up in such a repressive context? And not only has she escaped, she's on the journey of dealing with her religious trauma syndrome, rebuilding her life, and moving forward. In fact, speaking of Kate, we just had our first MindShift Zoom call of 2023 in January this year. Of She was our guest of the first one we had. Now, you can watch that video. That's available. I've got it on Patreon. It's on our closed MindShift podcast Facebook group, which, of course, you can get access to by supporting the show, and that helps me keep doing what it is that I do. So I appreciate some of the people who've come along in the last couple of months and become Patreon supporters of the show, and I'll talk a little bit more about them at the break. Now, speaking of Kate, just before that call began, we had it on the 22nd of January. Uh, She sent me an email, and she sent me a link to an article. It's really interesting. Doug Wilson wrote on his blog and my blog or may blog site, whatever it's called. He came out on the 2nd of January, 2023. Now this is really interesting. I don't want to get into it now. I'll touch base on it a bit later. Basically it's something like an open letter to the people of Moscow or the good people of Moscow, Idaho, something like that. But as I read through it, just before the call began with Kate, I was thinking to myself, you know, Has he listened to some or all of the previous episodes I did? Is this blog post a response to some of the points that I make or I made in those episodes really makes me wonder. So I'm going to go back through this. Once we get through taking a look at some of Wilson's really toxic and and very problematic theology, at the end, I want to go back to that blog post. I'll read a bit of it for you. I'll make some comments on it that are related to some of the things I've researched about Doug Wilson, of course, I've done a lot of reading on it. Talked to people like Kate, survivors, those of you know have been influenced in his orbit. So anyway, we'll go back to that at the end. So in the last episode, it just dropped before I took a holiday break. In fact, I've just moved in in early January. I moved in with my girlfriend, so hopefully the audio is okay. I've got a kind of a temporary setup right now in her spare room. So apologies if there's any issues with the audios, but. What I did was just before I moved in the Christmas break, I took another two plus hour foray 
into the many really some really disturbing scandals that have been attached to Wilson over the decades. And this goes back as far as the early 1990s, and it kind of got roots in when he took over the church or Christ Church, the Kirk, I should say. And looking at all those scandals, I think it's really important to note that I'm not simply trying to, I'm not just casting aspersions on Wilson. I'm just throwing stones at him, at, or at him or his leadership as pastor of Christ Church and New St. Andrews College and all that that he's got going on up there in Moscow. What I'm showing, what I'm demonstrating with all the research and everything that I've done is that there's a long-standing pattern of him not only covering them up, but making it worse. Wilson has abused his authority. He's abused his position. He's threatened. He's bullied those who've attempted to blow the whistle on these scandals, or they're just trying to make the truth public. And we've seen that many elders at Christ Church over the years, for example, have resigned their positions in protest over Wilson's handling of various scandals, and it goes back for decades, or maybe it was the way he threatened them if they tried to get the word out. So this is a long-standing pattern. And I'll say, too, in addition, I've heard from numerous listeners. I've had a lot of emails since I began this look at Wilson, the scandals, his sprawling religious empire, and so forth, is that what they've said is my research, my explanation of Wilson directly lines up with their own research, their own experiences of him, his teaching, or those in his orbit who have been influenced by his teaching. And that's proven to be really helpful because, like I say, people have told me on emails and so forth and on messengers, I've been able to put it all together in a way that kind of makes sense. It makes it easy to follow along. And also, because I've studied both theology and biblical studies on a graduate level, a PhD level, for nearly 20 years, I was a pastor. Later, I taught at a Bible college for about eight more years over here in the UK. I'm very familiar. I know that what they're talking about. I know theological jargon. I know biblical studies. I can clarify these things in ways that I hope make sense to you. Now, I'm going to mention this again later on, but if you want to connect with me, if you have, have any thoughts, comments, questions about this episode or any other one on Doug Wilson, you can either send me an email you can go on Facebook and look up the Public Mindshift Podcast Facebook page. There's a little button you can click, send me an email, which several of you have done. You can follow me. You can send me a DM on Twitter at Mindshift2018. So there's a couple of ways you can get a hold of me on social media. So what are we going to cover in this episode? Well, I want to give another thank you to our friends over at the at Examining Moscow Twitter account and the Examining Doug Wilson Facebook page. They had some real helpful feedback. Now, I was actually going to include this information in that last episode, the one on his scandals, but that would have made it probably well over three hours long. So at their suggestion, I decided to split it into its own separate episode. So thus, in this one, I'm going to take a look at three aspects of Doug Wilson's toxic, problematic theology. First, we're going to examine the so-called federal vision theology, and of course, like all things Wilson, there was a resulting scandal and controversy that came along with it. Second, we're going to take another look at this general equity theonomy position. We'll do some evaluation, some critical thinking about that. And then finally, we're going to conclude by taking a look at his stance on biblical patriarchy or Christian patriarchy movement and just how damaging this has been to so many people, particularly, again, women, people like Kate West. Later on, speaking of biblical patriarchy, I want to take a look at some of the major influencers in the Christian patriarchy movement 
that are in some way affiliated with Wilson, and they're taking his biblical patriarchy message and model in some extremely disturbing places. So that's going to be another episode that's coming out. But anyway, after this one, this episode drops, we're going to have that one with returning guest David Johnson as we take a deep dive into a so-called Christian or biblical defense of slavery, which of course involves Doug Wilson, as I mentioned the last episode, and Stephen Wilkins in their 1996 book, Southern Slavery as It Was. Uh, so if you remember what I talked about in the last episode, I mentioned that due to the firestorm of controversy that their 2004 conference on the book, they had it in Moscow, it created a huge firestorm, and of course there was credible charges of plagiarism as well. The publisher, that was Wilson's Canon Press, subsequently pulled the book from the shelves. Wilson would later go on to disavow and then drop Wilkins as his co-author, he, of course, he didn't disavow what he said in Southern Slavery as it was. What he did is he rebooted it. He rebranded the book. It's called Black and Tan. But, of course, as I said, with all things Wilson, he has never, at least to my knowledge anyways, never disavowed. He's never retracted his revisionist history, his racist sentiments that were on full display, really, in both books. Anyway, let's get on into the meat of this episode. Get yourself ready. As we take a look at the first of Wilson's controversial positions, the so-called Federal Vision Theology. All right, let's look at this issue of the Federal Vision Theology. Now, this was one of the theological positions adopted by Wilson and a lot of other people that led to him being charged with heresy by a number of Presbyterian denominations. And surprise, surprise, it's also proven to be very controversial, seemingly as with almost all things Wilson. So, how did all this come about? Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute, but it seems that although Federal Vision doctrines and talking points were not a new thing, the controversy itself can be traced off the back of a 2002 conference held at the Auburn Avenue Presbyterian Church in Monroe, Louisiana. They've since moved to a different location in the same town, as far as I can tell, but they've changed their name. It's called now the Church of the Redeemer. But in addition to being known as Federal Vision, you might also hear this position referred to as Auburn Avenue Theology. So it's kind of an interchangeable thing there. According to the Examining Doug Wilson and Moscow, Idaho Facebook page, which I'll just mention, it's got a really handy timeline of Wilson, his history, and the many scandals and things to which he's been attached. The Federal Vision, or as I say, the Auburn Avenue Theology controversy, all started as follows, or to be much more clear, began to be much more noticeable and thus more controversial than it already was. The Facebook write-up states that back in 2002, quote, Wilson participates in the Auburn Avenue Conference in Louisiana that kicks off the Federal Vision controversy. In a few years' time, 2007, he'll write the Joint Federal Vision Profession, which fleshes out the ideology and which he co-signs along with the other pastors who participated in the Auburn Avenue Conference, end quote. I'll mention a little bit more about this in a minute, but following on from this, from 2002 to 2010, various North American Presbyterian denominations responded by charging the Federal Vision position as potentially heretical or at the very least, aberrant, and I'll explain a little bit more what those terms mean in a minute. 
Among others, the list includes, for example, the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, the Reformed Church in the United States, RCUS, as well as several more. The conference back in uh, 2002 was given a riveting title. It was called Federal Vision, an Examination of Reformed Covenantalism. Uh, just as an aside, just hearing that conference name, it reminds me of some of the many academic, theological, or biblical studies conferences that I attended back when I was an evangelical. I can vividly recall, has a distinct memory, I listened to a theology paper presented by the late Canadian theologian, Dr. Stanley Grenz, back when I was a seminary student in Portland, Oregon. And it was funny because before he started, he put out this disclaimer. He said something to the effect that what you're about to hear is going to be some very heady stuff. My God, was he not kidding. About 30 seconds into the presentation, I think it was, I was utterly lost. And it went on for another 40, 45 minutes. I mean, my head was spinning. I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. But then again, that's academics. That's theology for you. Anyway, back to the Federal Vision controversy. Among the keynote speakers at the Auburn Avenue Conference, which was billed, I think it was a pastor's conference from what I can tell, were, of course, Doug Wilson and Steve Wilkins, the aforementioned co-author with Wilson of the racist, plagiarism-riddled, and historically revisionist 1996 booklet. I've already talked about it, Southern Slavery as it was. And I spoke about this in the last episode. In fact, as a side note, as far as I can see, looking at their website, Wilkins is still the pastor of the newly renamed Christ of the Redeemer Church in Monroe, at least according to their site. Of course, his church is part of Wilson's CREC, the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches Denomination, or whatever it is. Again, I ask the question, why in the world would Doug Wilson be affiliated on any level with Wilkins, who, along with that Southern slavery as it was, he was one of the co-founders of the racist neo-Confederate League of the South. I've got absolutely no idea, but there it is. So following on from the conference, as I mentioned, a number of pastors later signed a document entitled A Joint Federal Vision Profession. One of those signers, incidentally, was a name that you'll recall from the last episode, a certain pastor, Randy Booth, who at the time led a CREC-affiliated church down in Texarkana, Arkansas. And we talked about this. Randy's son, Aaron, was involved in the Logos School and NSAC drug ring scandal, as well as facing allegations of sexual impropriety with a Logos student back up there in Moscow. And you remember how Wilson helped cover that up. He obfuscated the severity of the charges against Aaron to the Christchurch congregation. He said he was going to be restored via church discipline. Oh, he's going to be suspended from the Lord's Supper. Man, that was a really tough sentence there for Aaron, wasn't it? And of course, Wilson also helped Randy Booth escape for potentially being sacked or at least removed from his pastoral gig, which should have happened according to CREC's own guidelines by promoting the fact that he was going to take a leave of absence, which of course he didn't even finish the whole leave of absence. Booth would later go on to be the lead investigator into the Stephen Sittler and Jamin White sexual abuse cases that I talked about in the last episode and would ultimately conclude, ah, there's nothing to see here, folks. So, yeah, I just thought I'd point out that particular connection, something of interest anyway. So going back to the Federal Vision Theology, essentially it's a really wordy, it's a hard-to-grasp doctrine that, as I understand anyway, is typical for 
theology. It's nothing new, as I say, when it comes to theological positions. I've had a lot of experience of it. When I was in uh, academics and in evangelicalism, I'm not going to go too much into detail, but I'm going to say something now. For once, we cannot blame everything on Doug Wilson when it comes to controversial topics or theology. In the case of the Federal Vision, as far as I can tell, its origins can be traced back sometime to the 1970s at Westminster Theological Seminary, where it turns out a lot of the early Federal Vision proponents, they were students there at the time, as well as you can tie in the Tyler, Texas brand of Christian Reconstructionism under the influence of a certain Gary North, and he's, of course, R.J. Rushdoony's estranged son-in-law back in the 1980s. Although the issues of justification and covenant theology weren't present in those early discussions, men like Norman Shepard, Andrew Sandlin, James P. Jordan, and his so-called Biblical Horizons ministry in the late 1990s, Peter Lightheart and George Grant were among its early proponents. Another influence credited with spreading the Federal Vision position was the Theologia or Theologia website created by Jay and Mark Horn, which dates back to the early 1990s. It featured a number of articles by Federal Vision proponents into the early 2000s. According to a 2019 article on the history of the Federal Vision on the Calvinist International site, author Stephen Wedgworth notes that, quote, the men of this period claimed that their covenant theology was that of the Calvinistic or Reformed tradition, and they opposed it to the Baptistic or Evangelical theology of 20th century North America. The chief interests of, at this time were seeing families as covenantal units, showing the influence or significance of paedo-baptism for covenant theology and ecclesiology, and asserting an aggressive Christian social and political presence. Paedo-communion or paedo-communion was already present among some of these men, though it was seen as a point of intramural disagreement, end quote. I'll, I'll explain in a minute what those two terms are in case you don't know the theological jargon. It's also worth noting that although he became one of its major proponents due to that Auburn Avenue conference, Doug Wilson did not share this same heritage, as far as I can tell. During the early formation of Federal Vision ideas in the 70s through to the 1990s, he was still broadly evangelical. He didn't begin to associate with the Reformed tradition until the 1980s. But it was at Auburn Avenue that many, particularly within the Presbyterian world, began to sit up and take notice of the Federal Vision position, as well as its associated theological problems. Going back to that article that I just cited from Wedgworth Notes, for example, that, quote, After the 2002 and 2003 Auburn Avenue Pastors Conferences, the Federal Vision moved from a conversation to a controversy. Many critical essays and books were written against it, and a few ecclesiastical bodies began issuing criticisms and even condemnations. One of the most important critical documents came from the Mississippi Valley Presbytery of the PCA in 2005. Federal Vision men, in turn, wrote responses to the criticisms, and the literature began to multiply." End quote. So what is exactly so controversial about the Federal Vision position? Why such a firestorm? Why these accusations of heresy? As I understand it, the Federal Vision position can be summarized as follows, and I might get this wrong, but this is what I've researched and found out. So let's take a person, okay, a new convert to Christianity. He or she enters into a covenant with God 
through the act of water baptism. And the charge that was virtually instantly leveled at the Federal Vision proponents was that, in essence, they were offering up a doctrine of salvation by works and not of grace. In other words, in their view, God does his part, the salvation part, but in order to maintain the covenant, the new Christian has to do their part, good works, to stay or remain within the covenant. Of course, there's a lot more to it involving topics such as covenant theology, understandings of the nature of the Trinity, biblical theology, typology, communion, Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, and of course, much, much more. Now, I'm going to mention on this last one, it's worth noting that there are two especially objectionable elements to which many Presbyterian and Reformed theologians and scholars have objected. First, I mentioned something called pedo or pedo-baptism, which is the practice of baptizing infants. And second, pedo-communion or pedo-communion, which is the act of giving children communion or the Lord's Supper. Among others, these two have seemed to be as, you know, particularly reprehensible and objectionable to many within those traditions. Therefore, off the back of the Auburn Avenue Conference or conferences, several Presbyterian denominations ended up charging its adherents with teaching heresy, or at the very least with being considered as aberrant theology, which in evangelical or Christian parlance, what it means is it's outside of the pale of what is considered historically orthodox Christian teaching. So if something is considered aberrant, therefore, it might not fall into the boundary of outright heresy, but in their view, it's at least thought to be as something involving a false or destructive, a toxic doctrine. So what's the difference between something that's aberrant versus something that's heretical? I mean, inquiring minds want to know. On the one hand, according to Scott Bowman in a 1990 Christian Research Journal article, aberrant theology is defined as doctrine that should be considered, quote, off-center or in error in some important way, such that the doctrine or practice should be rejected and those who accept it held to be sinning, even though they may very well be Christian, end quote. Heresy, on the other hand, is defined more as a doctrine or a teaching that is in direct 100% opposition to traditional Orthodox Christian doctrine and theology, something that is strongly at variance with long-established beliefs, traditions, and customs. Now, from my point of view, whether or not the Federal Vision position is merely aberrant or heretical, it's no concern to me. I am an ex-evangelical. I'm no longer a Christian. But I'm just going to say... Back in my evangelical days, man, I would have been all over this. I wrote a number of papers in Bible college, both in and seminary as well, examining various theological traditions, so I can understand why some would get so heated up about these issues. But on the face of it, if you just judge from the various reactions by numerous Presbyterian denominations against the federal vision, one has to weigh up the fact that so many within that tradition are highly concerned about it, to the point that a lot of position papers were written, uh, books and articles and so forth, pointing out its many perceived errors, its theological and biblical flaws. Just to take one good example, Southern Baptist pastor and scholar Dewey Novel on the Covenant Confessions website, he wrote a series of articles back in 2020 lambasting the Federal Vision position as outright heretical. Novel's argument is that, quote, it was proven from the JFVPs, that's the Joint Federal Vision Profession, convictions on baptism that Federal Vision theology is a system that posits God must do his part, grace, 
and man must do his part, works, to enjoy a relationship with the triune God in this age and in the age to come. This aberrant view of baptism stems from Federal Vision's failure to distinguish between the external, visible church, and internal, invisible church administrations of the covenant of grace, end quote. He further points out that, quote, further reflection upon the idea of decretal and covenantal election highlighted how Federal Vision theology posits that membership in the covenant of grace and union with Jesus Christ is only maintained on the basis of one's faithfulness to the Lord works. This alarming distinctive proves that Federal Vision theology is not compatible with the Reformed tradition's doctrine of justification by faith alone, should not be identified with the Reformed theological tradition whatsoever, and advances an altogether different gospel, end quote. He later went on to point out that for a number of reason, reasons that he lays out in his article, the Federal Vision position should indeed be denounced as heresy, although he does use the word aberrant, but he says it's absolute heresy. So for their part, of course, various Federal Vision adherents responded to these charges by arguing that their theology is in fact in line with historic Reformed tradition, such as the Three Forms of Unity and the Westminster Confession of Faith, as well as maintaining that their position on topics like covenant theologies are 100% in line with historic Reformed views. It's also worth noting that even among Federal Vision proponents, there were major disagreements and splits over various topics and doctrinal distinctives. Some were more hardcore about it, some were a little bit less. So it's fair to say that the movement was far from a monolith. Going back to the history of the movement, Wedgworth maintains that the Federal Vision position began its endgame sometime around 2012. This is around the time when Peter Lightheart moved from Moscow, Idaho to Birmingham, Alabama to start what's called the Theopolis Institute. In the end, then, Wedgworth comments that, quote, in the early stages, Federal Vision men had hoped to inspire a broad movement among churches in different denominations. During the second stage of Federal Vision, the hope was reduced mostly to the CREC, a small denomination with a strong strain of independency in church government. Thus, while many Federal Vision pastors joined the CREC and many churches began to experiment with Federal Vision thought and practice, there was never a central authority or unifying order. Liturgies varied. Explanations for similar practices could often be entirely different, end quote. As of January 2017, it appears that Doug Wilson stopped identifying, at least in some level, with the Federal Vision position. If there was a Federal Vision dark and Federal Vision light, Wilson had seemingly always been more on the lighter side, apparently. Wedgworth points out that by about 2017, off the back of a 2016 article he'd written criticizing Lightheart's more extreme position, the Federal Vision dark side of things, that, quote, Wilson maintained that he had not come to any major change in his own theology, but rather that he believed there had always been a fundamental difference in his own theology and that of some of the other Federal Vision men. This had not always been apparent to Wilson, but it had, it had become so by 2017. He dropped the Federal Vision name and has not advocated for ecumenical relations with Lutherans, Anglicans, or Catholics. Instead, he has spent much of the time working alongside Baptists, and other conservative evangelicals focusing on cultural and political issues. 
whereas Federal Vision Dark moved forward into a new terrain, Wilson, it might be argued, moved back into more familiar territory, end quote. I'm not going to say too much more about this, but it's worth taking a minute and zooming out from this controversy and taking, I think, a long view of this whole debate. Now, isn't it ironic to note that in church history, this type of internecine squabbling is absolutely endemic within various denominations, faith traditions, theologians, and biblical scholars. I mean, one only needs to look back at the millennia of church history to see numerous examples of how theologians and biblical scholars have written, they've, they've you know, said scathing letters back and forth denouncing the clearly heretical stance of their opponents. Back in the day, those affiliated with the Federal Vision, they would have been rounded up. They would have been tortured, potentially burned to the stake for heresy, depending on which denomination or faith tradition was in charge at the moment. The fact is that even after the Reformation, Catholics and Lutherans, as well as Reformed churches, all retained some measure of control over the spread of so-called heresies due to their relationship with whichever state or region they happened to control at the time. They had both the means and the motive to stamp out any teaching considered aberrant or heretical, and in many cases, any unfortunate who was charged with heresy by a church court, sentenced to a horrific death, preceded oftentimes by hideous torture, their grisly sentence would, in most cases, in most scenarios, be carried out by the state. Fortunately, that's not the case any longer. And Of course, as Kurt Anderson notes in his excellent book, Fantasyland, that, at least in the American tradition, the very fact that the country was largely founded on the principles of religious freedom and tolerance for all beliefs, ironically led to a free-for-all for thousands of new church groups, denominations, religious groups, cults, and all number of religious traditions. So if you disagreed in, with one church's doctrine, all you had to do was go move down the street, put up a new building, and start your own new one. There's no longer any controlling influence that has complete hegemony over what is considered aberrant or heretical, which is really a strange and ironic twist to the whole story that I seriously doubt Luther could have foreseen when he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. So all they can do now is trade insults, write books like Wilson's book, The Federal Vision. They can release position papers. They can argue the merit and relative merits of their position and the weaknesses of the other position, go on various social media outlets to point out the faults, the flaws within the other side's argument, of course, buttress their view using the Bible or some document from church history, some church confession or whatever it is. Now, going back to that federal vision position, I don't want to bore you with all the finer theological details, but one thing struck me while researching it is this. Federal vision embraces a form of something that's called baptismal regeneration, or in other words, in order to be considered saved, you got to get baptized. So in the federal vision model, as I understand it, the argument appears to be as follows. When a person is baptized, according to a Trinitarian formula, of course, a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit occurs, this is where God does his part, whereby they're entered into both the covenant with God and the church. The new convert then maintains that covenant by their good works which Federal Visionists characterize with such insider jargon or borrowing a page from Robert J. Lifton, we'd say it's loaded language. They use such terms as covenant faithfulness or faithfulness or obedience. Now, as far as I can tell, they don't mean obedience in the same way that obedience is discussed in the New Testament book of James, but ironically, it would seem they all rush to the book of James to make their argument. As noted, there's a lot of additional elements to it, which I don't want to get into here, but 
the issue of whether or not someone is somehow saved through baptism has generated a lot of controversy, a lot of heat, ultimately a lot of discussion, and it was one of them things that ultimately led to charges of heresy being laid at Wilson's door, as well as other Federal Vision people. And although not all Federal Visionists subscribe to it, as far as I can tell, most are post-millennialists in their eschatology, which means they believe that Christ will not return to earth until the church first establishes his kingdom. And this is a theology which we mentioned in the last episode, or probably the first one too, they share with Rush Dooney and the Christian Reconstructionists. They're all post-millennialists as well. Incidentally, speaking of which, that eschatology means that if in their view, Christ won't return to earth until the church establishes his kingdom first, that means they have to be busy trying to achieve dominion. Otherwise, as they see it, if the church isn't triumphant on earth, then Christ won't return. So they got a lot of work to do, haven't they, before they can set up the kingdom and see Christ returning. But what about Wilson's part in all this? Interestingly, since all this controversy boiled over, Wilson himself seems to have expressed the desire to distance himself from the controversy. But of course, in typical Wilsonian fashion, he engages in his trademark obfuscation on his blog and Mablog site. He posted a 2017 article called Federal Vision No Moss. So does he hold to the position or not? At first, it would appear that he no longer believes it. For example, let's listen to his wording. He begins by stating, quote, I have decided after mulling it over for some years now, to discontinue identifying myself with what has been come to be called the Federal Vision. It used to be that when I was asked if I held to the Federal Vision, I would say something like, yes, if by that you mean dot dot dot. Now my intention will be to simply say, no, I don't, end quote. All right, that seems clear enough, pretty concise, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so question do you subscribe to the Federal Vision position any longer, Wilson? No, I don't. No Weasley qualifications attached. Case closed. Let's move on. Aha, uh -huh. but not so fast. A bit further into that blog post, after a long and typically convoluted Wilsonian word salad by way of explanation, he then turns around and concludes by making the following statement. Quote, This statement represents a change in what I will call what I believe, it does not represent any substantial shift or sea change in the content of what I believe, end quote. So there you have it. He won't call it Federal Vision anymore, but it, in terms of content, what? Nothing has changed. No wonder his former professor, Dr. Nick Geyer, accuses Wilson of sophistry. Now, one more thing. While I'm on this topic of this Federal Vision theology, although, as I said, there's, there's a lot of aspects to it, one of the ones I mentioned a bit ago was this issue of so-called baptismal regeneration. Now, that caught my attention because, as a kid, growing up in the Church of Christ denomination up in the Seattle, Washington area in the United States, I can attest to the destructiveness, the religious trauma attached to this teaching. And I've shared this story before on other podcasts, but sometime when I was about 10, back in the mid-1970s, they showed that rapture anxiety inducing movie a thief in the night on a sunday night service like i said that would have been probably early mid 1970s convinced i'd be left behind after the rapture to experience all seven years of the great tribulation since of course i wasn't a true christian i was afraid then i approached my pastor i wanted to find out what do i have to do in order to get saved and thus avoid 
being left behind when the rapture happened, which was going to be like a thief in the night. You never knew when it was going to happen. Now, he told me that the way to be saved was to get baptized, according to that Trinitarian formula. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So at the age of 10 or so, that's exactly what I did. And essentially, although I believed in my heart that I was truly saved because I'd done everything the pastor told me to do, looking back the way I see it now, I think really nothing actually changed, nothing actually happened other than me getting dunked in a tank of water in front of the church. I struggled for years then with doubts over my salvation till I was about 13, at which point another pastor, that was his successor at the church I was a part of, he convinced me that this this was my problem. You got to get baptized again. He said, well, maybe the first one didn't take. So I did. And again, nothing happened other than me getting wet. It wasn't until I was in my mid-20s I was down at Bible College in Portland, Oregon. I was already a serving youth pastor at a Baptist church. I got baptized for a third and final time. Those lingering doubts and fears had plagued me for more than 15 years. In the end, I was baptized three times due to the religious trauma syndrome and rapture anxiety that I lived with for, what, about a decade and a half. So my take on baptismal regeneration is that it's a destructive doctrine. It can really bring about a huge amount of problems in the lives of people just like me. And I've talked to others. I mentioned before David Johnson. He's been baptized, I think, four times. So he's got me beat by one. And he was also raised in the Church of Christ. So that Doug Wilson subscribes to it, or what, in his words, used to believe it? I don't know. It doesn't really surprise me at all. As I see, it's just another aspect of how toxic, how damaging his teachings can be. The damage has been done. And while we're on that rabbit trail, let us let me diverge a little bit more. Indulge me a little bit more on this. About a month ago, our friends over at the At Examining Moscow Twitter account, they tweeted out, it was in response to me sharing that last episode, looking at the multiple scandals that have been attached to Wilson over the decades. They had a really interesting point. It was actually in response to a conversation that started over my initial tweet, and then some others who are familiar with Wilson as well as his teaching, they weighed in after listening to that episode. Now, I'd never thought of it this way, but the Examining Moscow account made a really good point. They said that one way to view the whole federal vision theological position is a giant grift on the part of Wilson. Yes, it's cloaked in all sorts of theological jargon and language and loaded language and all the rest of it. But after that tweet, you know, really made me start to think, about that point in light of my own lived experiences growing up in church, one I've just shared, growing up in the Church of Christ and being baptized four times, rapture anxiety, and I had decades of religious trauma syndrome. I mean, think about it. If you're under the Federal Vision Theology or any other theological system like the Church of Christ, teaches things like baptismal regeneration or some element of a so-called covenant theology position, at its bottom, it's a works-based system of salvation. Essentially, then, imagine this scenario. Just like me, as a young person, when I was about 10, one comes to the pastor or the church leader to ask, how might they be saved? How do I become a Christian? And by telling them that that salvation equates to the physical act of water baptism, and that such an action places them miraculously in a covenant status, both with God and the church, what it does is that places the person, that new convert, or we call them baby Christians, you know, back when I was an evangelical, It puts them in a position of dependence on both the church as well as its leadership, the pastor, and so forth. 
So in order to grow as a Christian, what evangelicals call the process of sanctification or maturing as a believer, it's supposed to be a lifelong process. The new convert is 100% reliant on things like listening to sermons, attending Bible studies, being discipled or mentored by so-called mature believers or the pastor, being part of the fellowship, being part of the church membership, and so on. If, however, one starts to fall away or backslide, going back to their previous lifestyle, which of course was sinful and evil and meant that you were headed for hell, their salvation is now in jeopardy. And it's ironic, even in a Calvinistic or Reformed system, which teaches that God predestines or elects all those who will ultimately come to faith and go to heaven, there's always that shredded out. Am I in fact one of the elect or am I nothing more than a self-deluded hypocrite fooling myself into thinking that I'm truly saved and heaven bound? Now, it's a really interesting example. If you look at church history, there's a crystal clear example of how this works. 18th century American theologian and pastor, Jonathan Edwards. And he was, of course, famous for the sinners of an in the hands of an angry God sermon as he preached in New England. As a young man, he grew up in a Reformed Calvinistic context in colonial New England. Edwards had always professed to love God. He read his Bible constantly. He was a young man and so forth. He attended church where he listened to the sermons delivered by his grandfather, who was the pastor. Uh, he wanted to be a preacher so badly. In fact, as a young boy, he would grab his sisters, take them outside, and he would preach sermons to his older sisters at playtime. But as he grew up, he couldn't work out whether or not he was truly saved or one of the elect because there was never a moment he could point to where he actually converted from that sinner to saint, from a lost person bound for hell to this miraculous conversion. Thus, he was tormented for decades about the genuineness of his salvation. Today, we might diagnose young Edwards as suffering from religious trauma syndrome. But of course, that language wouldn't have been used back then. All that to say that this is another aspect of this you know, Wilsonian federal vision theology. It's a works-based theological system that not only starts to fit into the pattern of creating dependence on the part of the convert or church members on him or the pastor, it also starts to slide once again into that realm of cult psychology and cult tactics. Cults are brilliant at creating dogmas, practices, and teachings that make the adherents or the followers 100% reliant on the group, and more specifically, the leader for salvation, enlightenment, spiritual breakthroughs, or whatever the leader promises these new recruits. And since the cult leader is often held up as a guru figure, a wise, more enlightened and spiritual leader who somehow has more of a connection with the divine than the average person, he or she is revered as a messianic type of figure. So just as a point of reflection, think about Wilson and his federal vision theology, whether or not he professes to believe it, you know, these days, I don't know, as yet another piece of grist for the mill that begins to portray him as a potentially controlling church leader that has set up a dynamic that causes new converts to be dependent on him and his expert teaching and his system. All right, after the break, we're going to get into another of Wilson's toxic teachings, the so-called general equity theonomy, which, if you recall, I talked about a bit in the first episode I did on Wilson, his backstory, and some of his theological influences.
All right, I just wanted to take a minute and remind you what is coming up in the next few episodes here on the show. We talked about that episode with David Johnson. It's kind of a long-form look into this so-called Christian or biblical defense of slavery. That's going to be the next one that drops. Then I've got one coming out. We're going to take a look at these beard bros, the dude bros, guys that have been in Doug Wilson's orbit, his influence, and they've been spreading his so-called biblical patriarchy message into some really disturbing places, the so-called manosphere. There's being a connection made there with some really toxic individuals. So this is another thing that we have to take a look at. And then we're going to have an episode where I talk to Dr. Nick Geyer, who was Doug Wilson's professor at the University of Idaho back in the late 1970s. Wilson was actually his student. He studied philosophy there. And of course, he's never had actually any formal theological training, but that doesn't stop people from platforming him. Guys like John Piper, Kirk Cameron, Ligonier Ministries. I mean, so many evangelicals continue to platform Wilson on their YouTube channels, TBN shows. They let him write articles for the Desiring God Network and so on and so forth. And the problem is, is like I say, he's it's allowing him to be mainstream within evangelicalism. A lot of people don't know the backstory of Doug Wilson, the scandals, the stuff that he's done, the things that he's said, that's all sort of been covered up, or maybe they just are ignorant, ignorant of it. So this is why I'm continuing to do this deep dive into Doug Wilson. Now, we mentioned to, earlier at the top of the show, we had some new Patreon supporters. I wanted to thank, give a thank you here to Kate West and Bonnie Anderson, who are the newest Patreon supporters. There's another one. I'll just mention his name, his first name, James. He asked that I not actually mention his whole name because he's got some people with, that might know him within the Doug Wilson orbit. So thank you to all those people who have supported the show on Patreon. If you want to help support the show, that would be great. Help me keep you know me doing what I'm doing. Go to patreon.com forward slash mindshift podcast. Or as always, the links to that are in the show notes. You can look at the video that I've just put up in the you know, on the Patreon page of our Zoom call with Kate West a couple of weeks ago as this episode comes out and I'm working on getting another guest. We normally have those calls round about the third Sunday of the month, so we'll be looking at getting a guest coming in in February so you can get access to that call as well as access to our closed Mindship Podcast Facebook group. So a lot of stuff coming up. Uh, on that. And then I'm going to be talking to Elgin Strait. We're kind of taking a break then after the Doug Wilson stuff. We're going to get a little bit back into some of the cult psychology, cult tactics. I was recently on a show. If you remember, I had Stephen and Celine Mather, and I think I was on their show one or two times, the cult hackers. We did a panel discussion and I met Elgin. He's actually an American who lives here in the UK. He's down in London and he's a former Mooney so we're going to be lining up a discussion or a conversation with Elgin. I think we might actually do two episodes, another one of those crossover ones, because he has a podcast as well. So that's going to be really interesting. So we're kind of hammering out the details now of what that'll look like. And of course, by then we'll have more guests, more topics. So look for some more content coming up. But there's a lot of stuff still in the pipeline coming your way. All right, let's get back into this episode, looking at the more controversial topics, the theology of Doug Wilson his general equity theonomy, and then we're going to conclude by looking at his biblical patriarchy stuff a little bit, and then I want to talk a little bit about that blog post. Remember I mentioned at the top of the show on his blog and map blog, the open letter to the good people of Moscow, Idaho, 
and make a few comments about that as well. So stay tuned for that coming up in the second half of this look at Doug Wilson and his toxic theology. Okay, let's take a look at the general equity theonomy position or model. We touched base on this a little bit in the last episode. I spent a lot of time on this in the first episode. I talked about Wilson's admission that he was not exactly a card-carrying Christian Reconstructionist, but he did identify himself as what he termed, in his words, a general equity theonomist. If you recall, we heard Wilson speak about this very thing in the YouTube clip in that episode I did on the question as to whether or not he was a theonomist or a Christian Reconstructionist. So what exactly is this position all about? In my opinion, general equity theonomy adherents and influencers like Wilson, they mask their true intention. I think that's what they're doing. They do so by using inoffensive language. They'll say things like, oh, we're just drawing principles out from the Old Testament law. But really what it does is I think it conceals their true agenda. As I understand it, general equity theonomy is one way in which people like Wilson justify or soft sell or soft pedal their adherence to elements of Christian Reconstructionism and or theonomy by appealing to a classical, traditional Westminster Reformed view. And of course, that predates R.J. Rashtuni, and he was, of course, the founder of Christian Reconstructionism. Such tactics, therefore, lend their position an air of historical orthodoxy and respectability, and thus it can appeal to a much wider mainstream evangelical audience. In a nutshell, as I see it, the general equity theonomy position It appeals to a classically reformed Westminster confession of understanding the question regarding the applicability of the Old Testament law for Christians today. Now, if you know your church history at all, the reformers struggled with the question of whether or not the Old Testament law was in any way binding on Christians in their day. The driver for this, of course, was their views on Scripture because they believed in the infallibility of the authority of all of the Bible. Surely then, in their view, Even the Old Testament laws had a measure of applicability for believers, not just in their time, but indeed for all time going forward into the future. As they saw it, they couldn't just toss out huge sections of Scripture simply because it had been abrogated with Jesus' coming in the New Testament and somehow setting aside the commandments of the Old Testament law and the sacrificial system. What they did was they finally landed on the position that Although, in their view, the ceremonial ceremonial and civil laws, they said, were no longer binding, such as the sacrificial system and all the feasts and so on, the moral law, at least in terms of the binding principle behind the actual law, they said that was still binding on all Christians. And if you remember in that YouTube clip, he appealed to this, Wilson appealed to this, and thus he identified his position on that clip as being a general equity theonomist. He doesn't think that the Old Testament law should be applied or imposed from the top down politically, as the Reconstructionist failure to do so in the 1990s demonstrated the fallacies of that position. Rather, he holds that it's more of a bottom-up reconstruction of society, one family at a time, church by church, and then larger communities, all living by the general equity of the laws, thus making it, I guess, some sort of utopian society. In his view, then, Pastors and churches should set the agenda. Communities will ultimately be transformed by the gospel and eventually impact eventually on the political realm. I think the basic argument, uh, Wilson would say something like, well, if everybody abided by such an understanding 
and an application of the general equity theonomy model, society would be a much better place for everyone. Sort of a rising tide lifts all boats sort of position. And although Wilson, in that YouTube clip, he never once used the word dominion, in a nutshell, I believe that what he was doing was he was laying out his vision of what taking dominion would look like. This is exactly what he's been trying to do for decades up in Moscow. According to Christchurch's own website, they've been working really hard for years to try to turn Moscow into a Christian town. However, although Wilson argues that living according to the general equity theonomy position would result in churches and families being very attractional to outsiders and non-believers, that this agenda would transform cities and communities for Christ. The brutal fact is that, as we've seen, his Christ church and associated ministries and his sprawling religious empire have been anything but that, mired as they've been in controversies around such issues as Southern slavery as it was, the major pushback from the locals around that 2004 conference, the drug ring, the gambling casino scandals, sexual abuses, abuse cases, Sittler and White, and Wilson's part in them. He actually presided at Stephen Sittler's wedding. He married a pedophile, and that's what he did. He's alienated, he's, he's angered the surrounding non-Kirker Moscow community as they watch his cult-like church and religious empire try to slowly take over the town. And this is something he talks about in that blog, and my blog article that we're going to look at later on. I've not mentioned this, but in some of the purchases of buildings in Moscow, there's been some kind of shady dealings around the issue of zoning laws, too, for some of the buildings they've purchased. And, of course, that's also incensed the locals. And then, of course, finally, the numerous offensive, racist, misogynistic, patriarchal, anti-COVID mass mandates and other controversial positions Wilson and his associates have espoused over the years. None of this is, in any sense, going to attract many non-believers to his version of Christianity, I would venture. But how exactly can the general equity theonomy position be defined, going back to that? Now, if you're into dense theological explanations, then you're going to appreciate this. The following is a definition of the general equity theonomy position. It's offered up on the Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary site as follows, quote, if general equity theonomy means that the core principles of the judicial laws remain in force, but those principles do not necessarily entail God's transcendent moral and natural law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, then that definition of general equity is contrary to the Reformed confessional tradition. According to the confessional tradition, we must not begin with judicial law to discover principles of general equity. Rather, we must begin with the Decalogue, and see whether there is any moral or natural law principle in any given judicial law, end quote. Well, there you have it. It's clear as mud. Typically overly dense theological buzzwords by way of an explanation. I mean, as I mentioned before, that's just a word salad. That takes me back to those days I mentioned before when I was a biblical theologian, I was an academic listening to those incredibly dense and confusing papers presented at conferences like the Society of Biblical Literature, that one that I listened to when I was a seminary student by Dr. Stanley Grenz. Really, it's a confusing position, but in essence, as I understand it, if one is being consistent with the classical Reformed view, apparently, it holds that one has to start with the Ten Commandments. You go then find examples of the application of the principles espoused in the Decalogue elsewhere within Old Testament law. Then you can apply the principle for today in general equity terms 
of the abiding judicial laws. Now, if you're really into theology, let me tell you, you can have some fun researching all the ins and outs of this position, but that's all I'm going to say about it for now. Incidentally, as I was researching this topic, it reminded me of the so-called inductive Bible study model I was taught back in Bible college. Now, they taught us when I was a student there at Bible college, there's four steps involved when you're studying a given biblical text, a book, or a passage. And the four steps are first, observation, second, interpretation, third, principalization, and finally, fourth, application. So when we study the Old Testament law, for example, now using that inductive Bible study model, we were told, we were taught, that it was the abiding principle behind the particular law that was still binding on believers today. So, for example, the law says that if you see your neighbor's ox stuck in a ditch, you should drop what you're doing and help him or her out. Although that exact scenario, of course, won't be binding today, since most of us don't have neighbors who own oxen, you see the principle, though, still applies. Though, for example, if in a snowstorm your neighbor's car is stuck in a ditch, there is the principle about providing help regardless of however much it inconveniences you personally, that would still apply to all Christians today. But as I see it now, that sounds suspiciously like the same argument advanced by Wilson and the general equity theonomy adherence, wouldn't you say? It makes you think at the very least. Now, going back to Wilson, we have to ask, what are the dangers of the general equity theonomy position as espoused by leading influencers like Wilson? I think if we go back to that YouTube clip, Wilson answers that. The issue, as Crawford Gribben and so many others have pointed out, is that Wilson's position is basically what the Christian Reconstructionists argued a generation ago, but with some of the more rougher, more objectionable edges sanded down. In a sense, in essence, it's a less objectionable way for Christians today, like Wilson, to get away with some form of application of Old Testament laws on modern society, rather than simply imposing them on civil society as people like Rush Dooney wanted to do. Rush Dooney's 1973 tome, over a thousand pages, his Institutes of Biblical Law argued that what we need today is a literal application of the Ten Commandments applied to American civil laws and civil society. So things like the stoning of homosexuals or incorrigible teens was a direct application of the law for Rush Dooney. There was no appeal to any principles. And this, to me, is exactly the danger posed by Wilson. He's found, in his words, a kinder, gentler version of Christian Reconstructionism. What it is, it's more palatable to a much wider audience of evangelicals today. But in the end, he could wind up achieving the exact same dominionist and theonomous end that guys like Rush Dooney and Gary North envisioned decades ago. He's just a doing sort of more sneaky, less immediately objectionable way. Let's move on now to the third and final topic, this issue of biblical patriarchy. Now, we see that Doug Wilson here is the, or a, leading figure in the patriarchal community, the so-called Christian Patriarchy Movement, CPM, or Biblical Patriarchy. What it is, it's basically codified misogyny. According to his view, men are superior to women, women are easily led by their emotions, and thus, of course, more gullible than men. Men must rule in their homes, including over their wives, who are often regarded as something like children to be ruled and commanded. Purity culture, courtship, and arranged marriages are common. Women are discouraged from higher education. Of course, it's at one of Wilson's schools or affiliated schools. Once they're married, 
having many children is encouraged. And then, of course, there's a potential links to the quiverful movement. Submission is a big deal, as in the husband making all the important decisions on behalf of the family and the wife should just submit to them. Examining to the examining Doug Wilson contributor, one of the panel members had a really interesting thing to say about this regarding how this whole thing works in the Wilson universe. And they stated, quote, I know several women who were set up in arranged marriages. It's pretty common for the wives to be much younger than their husbands. One woman who escaped told me that all single males who follow Doug Wilson as their chief patriarch pay special attention to the age of consent laws in whatever state they're in. That's because it's often older men grooming much younger women, some in their teens, well below the age of consent, end quote. If that's the case, then this is a hugely disturbing revelation. It begins to sound more and more like the description of a destructive cult along the lines of Warren Jeff's FLDS, the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, just of course without the added polygamy piece thrown in. According to the Truth About Moscow, Idaho site, which I've quoted from a lot, author Ulysses did an incredible job searching through Wilson's book, sermons, and blog posts to get a comprehensive view of his position on women. Let's listen, for example, to Wilson's own words. Let's be fair to him. It's from his 1997 book, Her Hand in Marriage, Biblical Courtship in the Modern World. Now, Wilson wrote, quote, If a woman were responsible to submit to men in general, her life would be unbearable. No one can serve two masters. But a woman who is responsive to a godly man is protected from having to submit to other men, most of whom are less than godly. She consequently has a great deal more liberty than a woman who is not protected in this way. Thus, the so-called independent woman is not under any kind of protection. She is truly on her own, but with the result being that she is buffeted about by all sorts of men. Wilson goes on, he says, But if her father were doing what he ought to do, or if she were in a marriage relationship where the husband was doing what he ought to do, she would be protected from the insults and harassment of men in general. This explains, says Wilson, why some of the most independent women are so insecure and why some of the most submissive women have a real security and strength of mind. Women inescapably need godly masculine protection against ungodly masculine harassment. Women who refuse protection from their fathers and husbands must seek it from the police. But women who genuinely insist on no masculine protection are really women who tacitly agree on the propriety of rape, end quote. Is that disturbing enough for you? Remember what I said once before, I think in the other episode, we talked about this with Kate West, between Wilson's argument and what Bill Gothard taught about that so-called umbrella of protection or umbrella of authority model. There's a lot of overlap there. Just listen to how Wilson concludes that section from his book, he says, quote, in the feminist movement over the last several decades, women have been looking for and have not yet found themselves. This is because they have been trying to find and identify their role apart from God's design. The beauty of biblical courtship is that it never leaves women unprotected, end quote, and just goes on from there. Really, though, one has to wonder why did Wilson write to the judges, the police officers investigating Stephen Souther and Jamin White, he wrote asking for leniency, sentencing leniency and so forth, given his harsh words for rapists and abusers in his writings. 
But of course, with all things Wilson, whenever he says anything or writes anything controversial, horrifying, hideous, he never backs down. He never apologizes. He never seems to retract anything. What he does is he goes on the offensive. He writes lengthy blog posts filled with confusing and misleading definitions and explanations that only further muddy the water. <laughs> he always seems to blame his detractors. I mean, talk about a martyr complex. In addition to his books and blog posts, Wilson has an Amazon Prime podcast. It's entitled Man Rampant, in which he promotes his patriarchal views, which, of course, has platformed his theology and his teachings among more mainstream evangelicalism. In that religion news article I cited from before, Gribben, Crawford Gribben comments that, quote, this talk show, Man Rampant, gives an indication of why this community is growing in influence despite the evangelical decline. Wilson as its host, uses the platform to set out the ideas that undergird his vision of Christian renewal, developing an agenda drawn explicitly from the Bible about the revival of traditional masculinity. And Gribben goes on to say, as its title suggests, man rampant promotes an extremely muscular Christianity. Forget Jesus as the as well-meaning, meek and mild. The first episode condemned the sin of empathy, Empathy, says Wilson, is not a good thing. The man rampant agenda is reinforced on Wilson's website, which draws upon the creative people living in the Moscow community to turn his arguments into striking visual metaphors and where, while dismissing racism, he argues that, quote, it is, it really is okay to be white, end quote. On Wilson's views concerning patriarchy, Sarah Stanker mentioned that Vice article numerous times she comments, quote, in his book, Father Hunger, the pastor, Wilson, writes that a lack of fatherly authority and biblical masculinity, one that does not simper and lisp, is at the root of various modern failings, including the poison of egalitarianism between genders. He has written, now quoting Wilson, the sexual act cannot be made into an egalitarian pleasuring party. Instead, he argues that, again quoting Wilson, a man penetrates, conquers, colonizes plants, while a woman receives, surrenders, accepts, and that true authority and true submission are therefore an erotic necessity, end quote. Wilson seems to have a particular focus on women in general and feminism in particular. For example, in a 2017 blog post, he stated that, quote, I am addressing a problem that has arisen in both church and home as a result of the unrelenting and very fierce campaign being waged by the feminists. By feminists, I mean both the crazy ones and the respectable mainstreamed ones. And by respectable mainstream ones, I am including the form of feminism that takes up the left wing of complementarianism. Thus far, it has been a most successful campaign. The upshot of the campaign is that a woman, considered as such, cannot really be admonished in any way by a man. He doesn't really know. He hasn't checked his privileges. He's, his thoughts are always suspect, and he's very much part of the problem. And Wilson concludes, So you, if you are a privileged male living in your little heteronormative hellhole, and you somehow expect that women will want to live in there with you, are a central part of the problem. The dogma I am addressing is the one that says that in the give and take between the sexes, the man should simply concentrate on taking and not giving at all, end quote. It seems to me that he blames much of the current problem on the fact that 
feminism has made massive inroads into the church, thus challenging typical stereotypes of men and causing preachers to soften their rhetoric about women and the rightful role of their husbands, both of which, of course, he sees as unbiblical. In his view, men have to lie to their wives in order to keep the peace at home. He says, if a man isn't at fault for something they've done, Wilson teaches that it's a sin to lie to your wife just to avoid a needless argument. He concludes that blog post by maintaining that, quote, the reason for this reaction is that Satan hates women and does not want them to have any pastoral care. He does not want them to have husbands who protect them. He wants them to be surrounded by feckless cowards who refuse to tell them the truth. He wants them to have men in their lives who would rather lie than lead, end quote. Now, ostensibly, Wilson claims to be against the so-called manosphere, and we're going to talk about this later on in another episode, but in his confusingly titled book, now see if you can get your head around this title, it's titled, Get the Girl, How to Be the Kind of Man, the Kind of Woman You Want to Marry Would Want to Marry. Is that confusing enough? But anyway, he argues that in the absence of good biblical teaching on the subjects of gender roles, many young Christian men instead turn to the secular manosphere. Wilson blames the unfortunate situation on the following. A, the feminist movement that has catechized churches with lies about what makes men and women attracted to each other, and B, preachers who promote a servant leadership view on men, heavy on servant, light on leadership. Upon discovering that being a doormat doesn't attract women, men are attracted instead to the secular manosphere. Wilson, of course, aims to correct all that with a, quote, biblical view of patriarchy and gender roles. And finally, his views on marriage are equally disturbing, especially given what I'm going to cover in a minute. That article that Sarah Stanker wrote in Vice, exposing Wilson's controlling empire, she takes a look at what he teaches regarding how a husband should control his wife. She notes that, quote, Doug Wilson articulates those lessons in his book, Reforming Marriage, writing, now quoting Wilson, wives need to be led with a firm hand, and that it is tragic that wholesale abdication on the part of modern men has made the idea of lordship in the home such a laughable thing. But she goes on to say, in his book, Federal Husband, Doug Wilson asserts, men must assume full spiritual responsibility for the household, including any wifely negligence to submit in, now quoting Wilson, spending habits, television viewing habits, weight, rejection of his leadership, laziness in cleaning the house, lack of responsiveness to sexual advances. Such a husband, says Wilson, must confess failure in leading his wife, outline clear expectations, and repeatedly point out her failures. If she complies, he must move up a step, requiring another of her duties to be done. If she continues to rebel, it's appropriate to call in the church elders, end quote. Now, although I could go on, I hope by now you're starting to get a good feel for where Wilson's coming from, especially on his view of how women should relate to men and how men are to treat women. Now, Let's take a look on this topic of Wilson on so-called rape culture or the propriety of rape. This is another highly disturbing aspect of Wilson's teachings in this realm of biblical patriarchy. It relates to some of the content I just mentioned on this issue of how, in his view, godly men are to protect women. But what happens if they're not doing their job because they're trying to be a servant leader? What happens if the woman refuses to submit or insists on being independent? 
Well, as Wilson sees it, these symptoms and more are all proof positive of the corrosive and unbiblical effects of feminism on the church. And this is one major area, in his view, where problem starts to arise, especially as it affects women around this disturbing issue of rape. Now, I've touched a little bit on this already in a previous episode, but back in 2016, Wilson became embroiled in an online argument with the late Christian blogger and author Rachel Held Evans over the subject of his views on biblical patriarchy, complementarianism, and so forth, and how that might contribute to rape or sexual abuse in churches. In response to her calling him out, he struck back on his blog and mablog site, as he typically does, by writing a blog post provocatively titled, quote, Courtship and Rape Culture. Wilson's argument proceeds as follows, and I think it's a valuable case study into not just his theology, but how his twisted logic works when it comes to this issue. In that blog post, Wilson declared, quote, It is the conviction of many of us here in conservative Christian circles that the principal threat to women is men. Taken as a general rule, women need to be protected from men. But because of the superior strength and higher levels of aggressiveness in men, and I know I run the risk of heavy fines and internment and sensitivity camp for saying it, what we must have in order to protect women from men is dot dot dot, men. Men are the principal danger, and so men must be the principal defense against that danger. You can complain about this if you like, and you may get your representative to introduce legislation about it, but it remains the fact that something that is 200 pounds weighs more than something that is 130 pounds, end quote. So this is how he explains the situation. In his view, in older, more traditional cultures, the principal responsibilities for protecting a woman fell on the men in her life, her father, her brothers, and ultimately her husband. This, he argues, was just a civilization thing that simply evolved as a matter of course. But in our modern society, that protective system has largely been lost. You know, all those pesky feminists and women's libbers who don't need a man. They want to be independent. So what are we to do in our progressive culture today? Well, Wilson answers. He says, quote, Christian men have an obligation to protect the women in their lives. This is one of the permanent things. It is one of the foundation stones in the natural order of things. God created Adam to protect and provide. Those are two central duties of men. It is what men are for. And he goes on, So what follows is a short summary of what I have taught in this realm for many years. The first duty that a man has is a variation on the Hippocratic Oath, where it says, First, do no harm. If a man's task is to protect the women folk, and yes, I know I sound like a troglodyte and also like a troglodyte do not care, then his first order of business is to make sure he is not the one she principally needs protection from. Included in that is the common error of protecting others stupidly, which usually winds up being no protection at all, end quote. Okay, so to start, Wilson believes that the principal job of men is to protect the women folk. Fortunately, that's not offensive to either men or women at all, is it? So returning to his blog post, Wilson's argument proceeds down that line as follows. He says, quote, Now I do understand why someone might argue that I am an overprotective throwback. I disagree, but at least it is a coherent criticism. But when I insist on the duty of Christian men to be a wall of protection for the women in their lives, and I lament the fact that many women have abandoned any such protection, how is it possible for Rachel Held Evans to think that I say, that unsubmissive women deserve to be raped, 
Mark, her use of that word deserve. And Wilson continues, he says, say it won't. For some egalitarian and very foolish reason, declines to have her dinner date walk her back to her car in some urban center after dark. Let us say she is raped and murdered. According to what RHE says, that's Rachel Held Evans, my response is going to be some variant of served her right. Now, you would have to be a fool not to see the connection between her refusal of an escort and what happened to her, but you would also have to be pretty vile to say that walking to your car deserves the penalty of rape and murder. You would also have to be pretty high up among Obama's advisors to falsely accuse someone of being that vile. And he concludes by saying, one consequence of rejecting the protection of good men is that you were opening yourself up to the predations of bad men. I fully acknowledge that this is not what such women think they are doing. They think they are rejecting the patriarchy or some other icky thing. But when they have walked away from the protection of fathers and brothers, what it amounts to is a tacit, impl implicit in principle, not overt, acceptance of the propriety of rape, end quote. So clearly, aside from his battle with Evans, such offensive statements generated a great deal of controversy. I'll just take one example. Blogger Nate Sparks, he wrote an open letter to TGC, the Gospel Coalition, which is affiliated, of course, with John Piper. He was protesting their continuing promotion and platforming of Wilson, which was all the more reprehensible, given what we just heard Wilson teaches. Sparks pointed out the following disturbing observation. He said, quote, Doug Wilson has stated that rape is God's way of punishing women who don't practice his flavor of female submission. He has called this the propriety of rape. Further, Doug has openly stated that rape statistics are nothing more than feminist propaganda, that by the very nature of their agenda, they are asking to be raped. He even states that victims still need to repent of their abuse and separates their victimization from the death of Christ on the cross, refusing to draw any line of solidarity in Christ's suffering, end quote. Sparks' letter, as I mentioned to the Gospel Coalition, was attempting to confront that organization as to why they continued to platform men like Wilson and other high-profile church leaders, too. They've been credibly accused of abuses of church members or making hugely offensive or controversial statements such as those of Wilson's. The Gospel Coalition, for their part, has neither removed any of Wilson's articles from their site, nor have they distanced themselves from him in any meaningful way, as far as I can tell, anyway. Along with Sparks, blogger Libby Ann weighed in on this issue, too. She stated that, quote, I'm trying to figure out how Wilson could even suggest that a woman who does not acquiesce to her father or brother's control is implicitly accepting that rape is morally correct and proper, and I'm coming up completely empty. Wilson may claim up and down that women don't deserve to be raped, but he is very clear that he believes that women who walk away from their father or brother's control are putting themselves in harm's way and opening themselves up to, and even tacitly accepting, rape, end quote. Essentially, Wilson's solution appears to be that when Christians embrace the practice of courtship for their sons and daughters, as he and his church promote, all the issues associated with rape will somehow magically disappear, I guess. From his point of view, it works like this. In his courtship model, approved by both sets of parents, all dates will be chaperoned. Submissive women will then be protected by their father and their brothers, and then their husband. Let's not forget, however, as we've covered already, that Wilson was embroiled in not one, but two sexual abuse scandals, Sittler and White, both of which involved predators who were, apparently on some level, 
approved by their parents to court young women in his church. In the case of White, as we heard, Wilson turned around and blamed the victim's parents for being sinful and foolish for allowing the situation to develop. Even worse, he constantly backed White, taking his side and minimizing his actions. In both cases, as we saw, Wilson wrote to the judges presiding over their cases as well as investigating officers asking for leniency. Once again, we see a major dichotomy between what Wilson says or what he writes and what he does in reality. In both cases, and of those women in his church who have tried to speak out about the marital rapes they've experienced in their own marriages, there's no man who protects them. Those women who do speak up or flee the church end up being shunned and therefore further victimized. On this point, we're going to let blogger Libby Ann have the last word before we take a quick look at that article that he wrote on his blog. In her article, I started a minute ago on this topic, she goes out on to point out that, quote, Wilson's imagined world where valiant men protect their women folk from external threats is just that, imagined. I know so many women who grew up in dysfunctional homes in conservative evangelical communities like Wilson's, women and men, who grew up with controlling or abusive parents and toxic ideas about relationships and family patterns. I know women from a variety of backgrounds who have left manipulative or unkind partners. There is no pretty patriarchal formula, says Libby Ann, for keeping women safe, end quote. Right, we're just going to conclude for a minute here. I want to take a look at this issue of, as I mentioned, this article that Wilson wrote, and I really wonder... Maybe I'm being being vain, but I do wonder if he listens to some or more of my podcast episodes that I did toward the end of last year, because he wrote this post on his blog and May blog on January the 2nd, 2023, and it's titled, An Open Letter to the Good People of Moscow. And he's talking about, basically, he says, I have two or three olive leaves that he wants to offer up. And he wants to talk about three so-called bones of contention that exist in our community. And he first starts out the article, talks about how long he's lived in Moscow. He says I, they, they moved here in 1971. He apparently joined the Navy. He got out of the Navy in 1975. He came back to Moscow. He went to the University of Idaho. And of course, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Nick Geyer, which was, who was his professor at the time. And then he got married, went to school, had kids, started living here in Moscow, he says. And basically, he's been living there for about 48 years. And he's got all of his kids there. They went to the University of Idaho. Some of his children have gone to various things in that town, you know. And he talks about Christ Church was established in 1975. He's been the pastor since 1977. So basically, we're fixtures in this town, and we're not trying to take over the town. So all that background aside, he then gets into the the actual issue. He says, you know, he asked the question, uh, quote, first, are we attempting any kind of a hostile takeover, meaning of oh, the town of Moscow? He says, no, not at all. Are we trying to duplicate what that Rajneeshpuram group did over in Oregon back in the 80s? No, not a bit of it. But if that is the case, then why do we say on our website that we would like Moscow to become a Christian town. This statement was recently highlighted by the Meet the Press segment that was done about that, us. And so what about that or things like that? And it's interesting because I mentioned the Rajneesh Purim group back in the 80s in my episode. And of course, I talked about that interview that he did 
uh, on that. I think it was NBC. And he says, well, no, we're not trying to take over the town. Uh, not at all. He says, goes on. How does it happen? How might it happen? He says, quote, we want to love and serve our neighbor. We want our people to build businesses that enhance the quality of life for everyone else. We want people to come worship the Lord together with us if they want to. We want to do our part to contribute to a thriving and bustling downtown. We want to mind our own business, and we would want every last bit of it, soup to nuts, to be entirely voluntary. So our tagline, all of Christ for all of life, does not mean that we want to stand on your front porch 24-7, tracks in hand, wondering why you won't open the door anymore, end quote. And he talks about, you know, people building business. He says, we're not controlling that, that we just, nothing to do with us. It's just, we're just enterprising. That's all it is. The people in our church are they're just enterprising. I don't own anything downtown and on and on and on. He talks about the laws and coercion. He says, we're not getting into any sort of handmade sale and so forth. Then the second thing he talks about is the confrontations with the government during the COVID. And he just says, look, you know, we were just resisting a coercive mandate. We're not trying to push our views on anyone. We're trying to help all of our citizens and not help ourselves. You know, so he's defending himself. Now, the last thing, the third scandal he talks about, or the olive branch, I guess he's trying to offer up, is are these sexual scandals. He says, quote, and last, if you are aware of us at all, aware of us at all, you have probably been made aware of various sexual or molestation scandals that have occurred in our community over the years and which our leadership has consistently dealt with in a conscientious way. It is not my point to get into the details of any of these cases, but rather, again, to provide a larger frame of reference on them for you, end quote. Now, he's talking about the Stephen Sidler and Jamin White, and I can't remember the name of the guy, but there was another recent episode where one of the elders of Christchurch was caught with child pornography on his computer, and that's being dealt with. Now, he's saying, now listen to this. This is where I start to call BS on this whole thing. He says, our leadership has consistently dealt with those issues in a conscientious way. All right? He says, hey, just a church, you know? It's undoubted that people are going to come in here, and among those are going to be some, they're sinners. He says, the church is a hospital for sinners not a rest home for saints. Now, he doesn't mention anything about his marriage of, you know, Stephen Settler and all that. He doesn't talk about any of that, writing to the judges for asking for leniency for them or, or Jamin White. He goes on to say, defending himself, he says, quote, so to help prevent such a complication, meaning the people, we can't help people talking about this, so we've kind of tamped it down. We don't want to have it controversial. He says, so to prevent such a complication from ever seeming inappropriate, the thing we want you to know is that we are a church that practices church discipline as necessary. We report crimes to the appropriate authorities, and we hold our members to the vows to live as becomes a follower of Christ, and that this is all tied in with our public stance against the degradation of our public morals. And he goes on to say some other stuff about these cases, but he says, and he ends that paragraph, says, in no way do we defend the indefensible or excuse the inexcusable. That's absolute crap. I mean, again, he's completely glossing over what he did in the case of Stephen Sidler, Jamin White. Uh, they did kind of inform the authorities, but he didn't apparently tell everything he knew. So I don't believe all that. Now, this is really interesting. He, he concludes this post. He says, quote, 
I said earlier that I was going to conclude with a heads up, and so here it is now. In the coming year, we are going to be trying various things that we hope will make our situation with the community less adversarial, which is a really interesting way. So he admits there that they have been adversarial. And he goes on, he says, we are not so foolish as to think that some trivial PR work or a misbegotten charm offensive is going to fix everything. But we are going to be looking for ways to ameliorate what we can as we can. If there is general agreement that things should be ramped down at least a little, we would like to help ramp it down in any way consistent with conscience. So if you see something like that from us and say, huh, to yourself, please know that it is not a trick. Whatever things we decide to do, it is being offered without guile. Cordially in Christ, Douglas Wilson, end quote. So that's really interesting stuff. He's admitting, essentially, as I see it, that the relationship between Christ Church and some of the other parts of his sprawling religious empire in Moscow, Idaho, have, in fact, been adversarial. They need to ramp it down, and this is because of the history. It's going to come off as just nothing more than a misbegotten charm offensive, so I found it interesting that, first of all, Wilson even felt the need to write this post. And I, you know, vainly wonder if it's partly because of some of the stuff I said about him in my uh, couple of podcast episodes that, you know, his version of Christianity is not attractional. And in fact, due to all the scandals, all the controversies, all the stuff he's done and said over the years is not going to be a place where people want to go to. I mean, he never talks about in this blog post about the racist stuff in Southern slavery as it was, the revisionist history, the charges of plagiarism, on and on and on and on. What about all that? So that's a very interesting thing. I thought that might be an interesting little thing to end on as we conclude this episode. As I mentioned before, then, thanks for hanging with me. This has been another long dive into the controversial pastor, Doug Wilson, looking at some of the elements of his toxic theology, looking at the federal vision controversy, general equity theonomy, as well as his biblical patriarchy views and the propriety of rape and all the rest of it. So coming out in the next episode then is the one with David Johnson. We're going to be looking at taking a very deep dive at this so-called Christian or biblical defense of slavery. And then as I mentioned, we're going to be talking with Dr. Nick Geyer. I did that interview a while ago with him. Absolutely fascinating all about how Doug Wilson is his most you know, controversial student that he's ever had. So that's going to be a really interesting chat with Dr. Nick Geyer. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the beard bros, the dude bros, the guys that have basically taken Doug Wilson's message on biblical patriarchy into some strange and weird and, quite frankly, disturbing places. So thanks for hanging with me. If you have any thoughts, comments, questions on this episode or any of the other ones I've done on Doug Wilson, you can write to me, uh, like I say, you can go on the Public Mindship Podcast Facebook page, click the button to email me, and I'll get that email, as some of you have done. You can follow me on Twitter at MindShift2018, send me a DM there, and so there's a couple of ways you can get a hold of me. As I mentioned before, you can always support the show on Patreon, be a part of our closed MindShift Podcast Facebook group, which is a very supportive community, and you can also get access to our monthly MindShift Zoom calls. We'll have another one coming up around about the end of February. The guest is yet to be determined, but I'm working on that. So thanks for hanging with me as we took a look at Doug Wilson and his talks to theology. I'll see you again in a few weeks with David Johnson as we look at this issue of a Christian or biblical defense of slavery. 